0: Many years ago, the Reformed and prophetic theologian Francis Schaefer said that modern people seek two things, personal peace and affluence. Let's ask the question, if you had to choose between those two, which would you pick? I think probably the younger people in the audience would immediately say, I want the money. Affluence means lots of money. The older people in the congregation would probably say, I'll go for the peace. Both are understandable. But if you give them much thought, you realize that peace is the better option. Just look at the dismal story of the Powerball winners in the states and around the country whose lives have been destroyed because of their love of money. When they receive those huge sums of money, uh, they're, they end up divorced, they end up bankrupt and, and miserable. We read in Proverbs 17, 1, Better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. Personal peace, despite circumstances, sounds like the ultimate payout, the final and the greatest gift you could ever receive. But what do we mean by peace? Maybe this morning you've adopted the world's definition of peace, and so you're very much settled for something much less than what God is promising his children. In fact, God promises a peace that passes understanding, a peace that far surpasses the peace that the world seeks. Even Jesus spoke of this in John 14, 27, where he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So that's the Lord's help then as we look at this fruit of our union and communion with the Spirit of God, and learn what the Lord has in store for us who put their trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for now this time to reflect on your revelation to us, your infallible, perfect revelation. And we as a fallen people, even those who are believers who still have that remaining sin, need to hear your word this morning. And so I pray that your spirit would effectively take that word and implant it in our hearts. Give us a greater desire to walk with Christ and to know the peace that he has promised to us. We pray in his name. Amen. Frederick Nietzsche wrote a paper entitled The Parable of the Madman in 1882. And it tells of a man who runs into a marketplace and he screams out, I seek God, I seek God. But those around him, they mock at him, they yell at him. They laugh at him, and so he shouts, I'll tell you where God is. We have killed him. And then he asks the famous and the haunting question, what were we doing when we unchained the earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Are we not plunging continually? That's one of the most profound questions in literature. What happens when humanity unchains itself from God. Where will go? What will happen? Well, we're seeing in our own culture uh, this kind of effect in historically unprecedented ways. Attacks on the very structures of society and the family, particularly those in the West that represent any kind of a fundamentally Christian worldview. And it comes when it comes to the top of peace, we are saying that almost anything but peace is resulting. That's what happens when you are unchained from the source of true peace. In 1947, an author by the name of W.H. Auden wrote a poem entitled, The Age of Anxiety. How much more fitting is that today than it was even 75 years ago? Almost 30% of US adults are said to have anxiety disorders, requiring some kind of treatment or medication. The two most frequent drug purchases on college campuses are birth control pills and anti-anxiety medications. If you turn on any social media, one of the first things you notice is how quickly people become angry and attack. They'll attack in the, most, in the meanest ways, most angry, bizarre, using these angry and bizarre arguments, uh, particularly nowadays if you post something that's even mildly Christian. We're living in an age of anxiety, angst. Lord, that word, angst, by the way, is defined as a feeling of deep anxiety or dread. Was used by the existentialist years ago to describe that sense of something's just wrong. I have, to, I have to deal with this. Something is, um, that's an that's unfocused kind of dread in the human condition. It's no wonder that many are calling for personal peace at a time when there is so much angst in the culture. It's even beginning to be hip. In a lot of contexts, to you have your own personal counselor, you probably have heard of this, uh, particularly people in California no reflection. In, well, it is a reflection in California, but uh, <laughs> other places as well, it's kind of like, well, what does your counselor say? It becomes conversations. My counselor says this. My counselor says that. All these people are getting counselors to try to help them deal with their life. They get their life coaches. Many are seeking peace, but what is it that they are looking for? This is where we will find that the secular notion of peace is much less than what's offered by the Lord to his people. The world's idea of peace tends to be equated with a mere uh, lack of conflict, or financial security, or house surrounded by tall impenetrable fences. Uh, Some think of some kind of man-made utopia where people spend their time in intellectual pursuits. I grew up in the 70s where the peace sign was the big thing. Uh, We had the the Vietnam War going on, and everybody had the the little peace symbols on their cars, and they're going around saying, Peace, peace, like this. What are they looking for? Well, they just want the war to stop. Of course, when we talk about biblical, godly fruit of the Spirit peace, it's much more profound than anything the world has to offer. In fact, we noted earlier that Jesus promised a peace not as the world gives. The peace that God brings is not a temporal lull in a conflict or a momentary sense of tranquility that can evaporate with the evening news or a financial setback. Biblical peace so far outweighs any peace the world has to offer because the source of that peace is God himself. Now to understand biblical peace, then we have to begin in the Old Testament. Many of you are familiar with the Old Testament word shalom, shalom. Shalom is often translated peace. It's one of the words that was used just this morning in the Old Testament reading. It refers to completeness, wholeness, fruitfulness, flourishing, soundness, prosperity, tranquility, safety, and blessing. Shalom refers to a deep, rich, and flourishing wholeness. In one's relationship with God, in the heart of the believer, and third, in relationship with others. The promise of peace for God's people is woven throughout the scripture. It's mentioned in some form or or another, at least 237 times in the Old Testament, that word shalom. And of course, the peace is ultimately found in God himself, who is referred to in Judges 624 as Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. We see the word peace employed, as I said in the, this this morning, in the ironic blessing, where he says, "The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace." We read uh, the prophetic words of Isaiah about a Messiah who would be born. As we come to the New Testament, and he's referred to as the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9:6. As well, in the New Testament, there's a Greek word that's equivalent to that word shalom, the Greek word irene. Irene is translated as peace, harmony. Concord, tranquility, quietness, or rest. The word comes from the word iro which means, this is green, the Greek root of it, which means to join or to tie together into a whole. That's an interesting picture, isn't it? We, get, we tend to think of peace as, well, there's no, no conflict. But what this is describing is not just that there's not conflict, but that there's a joining, a wholeness. That word is used over 90 times in the New Testament. Let me just point out as well that that word anxious that we read about in uh, Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious for anything. That's an interesting word. It actually comes from the Greek word, which means divided into parts. So when we think of Irene or of the wholeness, the peace that's described in the New Testament, it's saying it's the opposite of being anxious. Instead of being torn into parts, uh, instead of being divided, uh, this is a pulling together. It's the opposite of what God promises his people. Restoration and wholeness is what he's promising. So for our purposes this morning, let me suggest a definition. I put it in the bulletin just because I thought it's going to be uh, hard. If you're writing anything down, this is a longer sentence, and it might be distracting. But if you look, this is our working definition here. Biblical peace is the restoration of men and women to a state of fellowship with God and each other and the internal and external harmony, wholeness, and tranquility that result from it. So again, we can see how this is different than what the world is promising in terms of peace. So let's look at each one of these. We're going to look at three parts. One is our peace with God. And then second, the, in, the internal peace that results from that first peace, that peace with God. And then third, the horizontal effects of that uh, in our relationships around us. Let's begin with. Peace with God. Now, of course, the Bible teaches that when Adam and Eve sinned, they experienced a separation from God, a spiritual death. The peace and the wholeness of the relationship they had with God was severed. Each one was personally torn inside by their sin. And every person born, the Bible tells us, every person born of Adam and Eve are going to be born with a sin nature and all that comes with it they are by definition torn with inside but they're also at war with god himself everyone is born an enemy of god the scripture tells us we read of this in verses such as colossians 121 or it describes how we were once alienated and enemies in our minds by wicked works Paul writes at the end of his description, if you recall in Romans 3, where he gives this big long description of sin, no one understands, no one seeks after God, there's no one interested in God, but naturally speaking, that sin nature in us drives us away from interest in him. Rather, we are told that we suppress that truth. And he ends up that section in Romans 3, that says the way of peace they have not known. There's our word again. Consequently, every man... And woman is naturally born at war with enmity between them with and them and God, whether they believe it or not, whether they like it or not, or whether they know it or not, that is your natural state. The consequences of that enmity are eternal. God promised that everyone will one day give an account of their rebellion and their war against him, unless that war between them is resolved. We read in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That brings us to the message of the cross and the peace that we have been considering. Listen to these verses from Romans 5, 1, and 10. Paul writes this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So again, describing the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, and now he's saying here, how is that resolved? It's only through God himself taking on flesh, coming down and resolving that conflict by taking the wrath of God upon himself for those who put their trust in him and receive that gift. Those who do not remain under that wrath and one day will experience the full separation of God through all eternity. Colossians 119, It pleased the Father that in him, that's in Jesus all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. That's the only way. The Bible is very clear. There's one way. It has to be through the blood of the cross. That's the message at the heart of Christianity, isn't it? We were born sinners of God. We were at war with him and destined to suffer under his wrath. But then God the Son died in our place, putting himself under the wrath instead of us. He clothed us in his righteousness, and thus we are reconciled with God, and that brought peace. And remember, this does not just mean that we're not at war. We are reconciled with him. We know fellowship with him, union with Christ, communion with Christ. We abide with him. We know the fellowship and blessing of a relationship with the very creator himself. Let me add that before we move on. If you're here this morning, and if you have not known that reconciliation with God, there is no more important decision that you have to make, even now. Don't walk away. I'll just plead with you. Don't walk away from this church without addressing that. Second, we looked at that peace that we can have between God and man, that bridge, that gulf that's been now bridged by the work of Christ. And now we have that union and communion with him. We have fellowship with him. But there's also a result of that. There's a personal and internal peace that we can know because of that relationship with him. What do we read in James 4 about the, the problems that we have? It says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war In your members? We have this internal war within us, don't we? Especially if you're a Christian, you have this war between the spirit and the flesh that goes on. He says, This is what stirs things up. This is where that lack of peace, that anxiety comes from. The peace that God promises here is a restoration of the wholeness that God begins to work in us. When we mortify the old man, the remains of sinful flesh in us, and the image of God begins to be restored in us, that old man doesn't go without a fight. Even so, as God's image is restored in us, we begin to understand and to experience that peace that God gives us. The internal struggle between the flesh and the spirit, the difficulty in finding the correct priorities and keeping them, being torn between one choice and another, all of these the Lord begins to address in us. He promises peace to those of us who grow in sanctification. We read about this peace throughout the Bible. As I said, Shalom in the Old Testament, New Testament, and for example, we read in Romans 15, 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy, fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what God has promised to those who walk with him. Well, it begins with a peace with God. We have to have that reconciled to begin with. And then Lord begins to work. In us, he begins to build his character within us, including the fruit of the Spirit that we have been studying now for any number of weeks, and particularly this morning, peace. So it doesn't stay there because you have once have peace with God, once you are reconciled to him, and once you are growing in your faith, the Lord begins to transform you transforms our minds and so that we begin to think like Christ we begin to accept and to embrace his priorities to think about the broader picture of all of life and eternity he sanctifies us he helps us to grow in righteousness that righteousness then has a horizontal effect both with other Christians as well as with unbelievers let's look at each of those in regards to Christians, what is the effect of the work of God's sanctification in you? When you grow in righteousness and those around you are growing in righteousness, the Bible tells us that peace is going to be the result of that. So this is where that topic of peace comes in again, and the horizontal relationships. That relationship between peace and righteousness is an interesting one. i uh, one of the things that's so neat about some of the uh, current computer programs that are available now is you can do these searches in your computer that wouldn't have been able to be done you know, years and years ago. Uh, so you can just say, what about, where is this word and this word used together but not in this context, plus this, and less this, and you can create these huge scenarios and find these really interesting places where there's connections between them. And The same is true of peace and righteousness. I've done some studying on this and I've seen how many places Righteousness and peace are put together. Let me give you several of them. For example, Psalm seventy two seven. In his days the righteous shall flourish and an abundance of peace. Psalm eighty five ten. Mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed. Isaiah thirty two seventeen, the work of righteousness will be peace, and the effect of righteousness quietness and assurance forever. Isaiah 48, Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of a sea. You notice the difference uh, between this and James 1, where it says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure? I mentioned this a moment ago. And that war in your members, you lust, you don't have, you murder, covenant, cannot obtain, you fight in war. But the New Testament read, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In the book of Hebrews, you remember you're reading about the, the king of uh, King Melchizedek. And it was said in Hebrews, it says in Hebrews 7, 2, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. In James 3.18, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Do uh, you getting the point? One last one. Uh, Hebrews 12, talks about God's discipline. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful at the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The very vows you take when you join the church, put these two together as well, is when you take the vow to strive for the peace and the purity, the righteousness of the church. Now, that actually shouldn't surprise us, right? If we all have God's moral law, uh, we all love God's moral law. We think of the summarized in the Ten Commandments or in love God and love man. If we're all abiding by that same moral code, would you not expect there to be peace, People that respect authority, people that are not murdering one another or attacking one another, people that uh, hold to the sanctity of marriage and children, those that don't covet after one another, that respect one another's property. All of these are part and parcel of a culture that if they all embrace it, it's a culture that will incredibly will be blessed by God and flourish. But, of course, this will not be perfectly achieved until we get to heaven. But in the meantime, we need to recognize that if we want peace in the church, then we all need to live righteously. It's not actually surprising when you think any time in a church when you have one person who gets involved in sin, it tends to drag the whole church with it. I don't say that as a guilt manipulation or as a, to lay on guilt on anybody. We all have struggles we go through. But you've seen it. When one person begins to just involve themselves completely in their sin, their family, their immediately family gets involved. Their friends get involved. The church gets involved. It's hard. And this is why we all want to seek for the peace of the church through a righteous living, to honor the Lord, and to enjoy the peaceable fruit of righteousness among each other in this context in the church. Now, what about non-Christians, though? What does this mean for non-Christians? We've examined... The internal peace that can come, that God gives who are at peace with them, and then the the peace that flows out to those other believers who are like-minded and who are all committed to growing in Christ. But what about peace with unbelievers? What does the Bible teach about that? Are we to seek peace with unbelievers? The answer is yes. Hebrews 12, 14, "...pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord." Romans 12 says, If it's possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. But the reality that we have to recognize is that there is a war going on the war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. What does Jesus say to his disciples in Matthew 10? He says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. That war is alive and well. The sword that Jesus brings is the ultimate separation that will occur when he comes in judgment. Until then, there is that war between light and darkness, between truth and the lie, between right and wrong. Cornelius Van Til wrote about this in his book *An Education*. He said, "This there's not a square inch of ground in heaven or earth, or under the earth, under the earth in which there is peace between Christ and Satan." And what is all important for us, continuing the quote, is that according to Christ, every man, woman, and child is every day and everywhere involved in this struggle. No one. Can stand back, refusing to become involved. He is involved from the day of his birth and even from before his birth. Jesus said, He that is not with me is against me, and he that is gathered not with me scatters abroad. If you say you are not involved, you are in fact involved on Satan's side. End quote. So much as we attempt to be at peace with all men, the reality is our choice to follow Christ will be at odds with the culture. Uh, especially we're seeing this more and more now, more than any other time in our nation's history. As the West moves further away from God, as, as it unhitches from the sun, as we saw earlier, we'll find the rift between us becomes more and more clear. I actually think... As we watch the culture, as we see the, uh, the, the acronym develop, the LGBTQ+, it's apparently now 2SLGBTQIA+, it, it changes all the time. I think the best one would just be ABC, which is anything but Christianity. I think that's really what the summary is. If you think about it, what they're trying to do is they're trying to transgress every single boundary that God has established, moral or ontological. If we can destroy that, then we've destroyed it. Uh, then, then, then we win. And in the end, that's ultimately what the point is. We want to destroy what God has created and to establish our own kingdom. That's why it's going to become more costly to follow Christ. Jesus knew that. and He knows us now. That's why he's told his disciples in Matthew 10, He who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake shall find it. Well, how do we apply this text today? Let me make three applications. The first is a gospel application. We just know that there's an enmity between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. We know that the Lord will bring in our past those who disagree with us and maybe... um, they don't even know why they disagree with us. They only understand that we're the enemy, and they want us silenced or they want us removed. But are we really their problem? No, of course not. Their problem is really their alienation from God due to their sin, and their greatest need is to reconcile with God, that they might finally know peace. That's the message the angels sang when Jesus came to earth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men. So we have this message to give to unbelievers, don't we? This is what Paul refers to in Ephesians 6.15 when he says, Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's the good news that we bring. Good news of that reconciliation and that peace. One of the callings of all believers then is to be ready to share that gospel of peace when the Lord providentially gives you the opportunity to do so. But let's make sure that the gospel that we bring is not the social gospel. It doesn't start out in the horizontal plane. It's not a gospel that promises peace apart from repentance and faith. Too often a reading of Christians who treat the gospel as if it's first and foremost a, a message of social reform. And though it's true that God can and will bring about social peace in his time, it is not a peace that will come about uh, without people humbly acknowledging their sin and their need for a savior. Second application, maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, well, I hear what you're saying, Dan, about peace, and I believe in the good news of Christ, and I've repented of my sin, but I still feel anxious and fearful. My life is not marked by peace. Let me give you some encouragement and instruction from the word on this. Remember that even though you may be one of God's elect children, you still live in a fallen world. It's getting more hostile to Christians, and is, uh, you still have remaining sin as well. Uh, Romans 8, 6 tells us to be carnally minded as death and to be spiritually minded as life and peace. And it tells us that that flesh and that spirit war against one another. You are still being sanctified. You do not, you're not going to know fully the peace of God until eternity. Even so, let me give you some practical counsel on how you can deal with some of the anxiety, the angst that you might face from time to time couple of just very practical ones. Just uh, you think, well, why don't you just get right to the meat? But let me just throw this out here. First one is if you're a news hound, turn off the social, turn off the news. If you're reading news all the time, it's designed to stir you up. And you think, well, you know, why, what, give me a verse, though. Right. Well, there's some practical things you can do besides going to the scripture. But we'll go to that in just a moment. But first thing is stop putting the junk in there that's stirring you up. Turn it off. Second, exercise. Doesn't that sound strange from a pulpit? Eat right and exercise. You'd be amazed. There are more and more studies that show that just exercise alone does a tremendous amount. But we have to go further than that. After clearing your mind of thoughts that bring about anxiety, and think of the garbage in, garbage out acronym, the things that destroy your peace, you want to think in those things that bring you peace. For example, we read in Philippians 4, 6, that classic passage on peace It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. That's what you put into your mind. What's the result? The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. is not that interesting? The first one says, you, you, you are anxious for, "Don't be anxious, prayer, supplication, Thanksgiving. let your request be known, made known to God. The peace of God will come to you. And then you meditate on these things. the God of peace will be with you. This is what the Lord is promising to, to His people. Let me take it even a little bit further because sometimes I think that we read those verses and we think, well, I know that, Dan. I've read those verses. I've said them to myself a thousand times, and I still feel anxious, and I understand that. But what we have to remember is that, again, that remaining sin is going to fight that process of sanctification. It's going to take time to experience the benefits that are promised. I give the example in counseling very often of turning the ship at sea uh, that you you don't take one of those big huge ocean freighters and say take a left at the buoy uh, any more than you change the the very makeup of your soul uh, because you've recited a verse or two this may take months or even years in your life as you work through these situations let me add one more thing not to depress you (laughs) uh, but just one thing just to keep in mind to make it real is that not only does it take time you're going to have new situations come up in your life. As you get older, I know, as I've gotten older, I've got new things I'm thinking about that I didn't think about 10, 15 years ago. You have more complicated relationships. You have more people. You have more situations and more awareness of things around you. There are greater challenges. And so, again, when we've talked about the fruit of the Spirit, we say it's not just something magical that appears because you read a verse or because you put your Bible under your pillow and in the morning, hey, you got it. through some osmosis. It's something that we all work for. We work to love other people. We work to know the joy of the Lord. We work for our own peace. Now, it doesn't come apart from the Spirit of God in us, working that in us, but it doesn't come apart uh, of us detaching from all these things and just waiting for something magical to happen either. Another practical application is Isaiah 26, 3 and 4 says, You will keep him in perfect peace Whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you, trust in the Lord forever. For in Yah, the Lord is everlasting strength. Great verse when you're struggling with anxiety or lack of peace. The context of that particular chapter and those verses is Isaiah 24 to 27. It's known as the Little Apocalypse, in which God is described as bringing His wrath. Upon the earth and judgment upon the wicked. Chapter 24 is about God's overthrow of the wicked. Chapter 25 is God's people praising him. And then chapters 26 and 27 are God's interactions with his people, where we find that particular verse. And our passage in 26 3 says that God is going to keep his people in peace. But how will he do that? Who will experience that peace? It says, He says to those those whose minds are stayed. It's also translated who lean, who rest, who support on him. The one who trusts in God. The author then instructs the reader to trust the Lord forever. Uh, Says the Lord, that is the covenant God, in his everlasting strength. Uh, Those last two words are sometimes more literally translated, the everlasting rock of ages. You wonder where that came from? Right there. Because your mind is stayed, it's resting, it's constantly uh, focused on the rock of ages. Understanding God's omnipotence then is going to be very important in this process. We'll see it as well tonight. The one who's going to have perfect peace is the one whose mind is focused on the reality of who God is and all his attributes including omnipotence, love, and perfect knowledge. The believer then reminds himself through his thoughts, words, and deeds that he trusts in God, Because God is trustworthy. As I said, this is a lifelong process, only to be fully realized when we get to heaven. But we can have glimpses of this as we go on in our lives. It won't be perfect, but we'll have glimpses of those times of great peace where we say, okay, I'm getting it, I'm starting to understand it, I'm starting to experience it. Then a new thing comes along, we've got to relearn it again in this new context. Uh, But it's a process as we go through life in this. Third application, final application, to point out the importance, then, of peacemaking. We read in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God has called each of us to be, then, a peacemaker. It means if we are those who stir things up in a family, a congregation, a school, a neighborhood, a business, then we are acting contrary to the word of God. And ultimately, it calls into question our salvation. It says, they shall be called the sons of God. Who? Those who are the peacemakers. That's what he's calling us to be. One of the things that God hates, we're told in Proverbs 6, is the one who sows discord among brethren. Christians should be, then, those who move into situations to restore peace, to bring wholeness and order. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean every time you see a conflict... You need to jump in. Proverbs tells us that like the man who grabs the dog by the ears is the one who jumps into a a problem that's not his. Uh, You don't interject yourself into every situation. You can pray, and in situations in which you do see some kind of chaos or conflict, and it's a situation in which you are a part, you are the one that's called to go in there and to bring a resolution to it. We'll talk about patience tonight. How oftentimes you think the resolution is shouting and saying, stop it, you know, and getting all mad and I'm going to stop all the problem here. And it says that's not what a peacemaker is and that's not what patience of God is. We'll see that tonight. We should move into these situations and restore peace as God gives that opportunity. Uh, What if we all thought that way when you came to church on Sunday and Wednesday nights? Or when we get up in the morning? So let me ask, where would the Lord have you be a peacemaker even today? Brothers and sisters, my prayer is that our congregation, every member, will strive to be a peacemaker. May the Lord bless you in this effort. He has given you the power of the Holy Spirit, the wisdom of Scripture to make that happen. And when it does, you will be sanctified, the church will be edified, the kingdom of God will be forwarded and god will be glorified by it so be it let's pray father we recognize that so often we think so little of what that word peace means and thinking it's just a lack of conflict but you are promising something so far greater than we can even imagine or think And I pray, Father, that even this morning as we reflect on these words that we would have a greater appreciation for that, a greater desire to know the peace that you promise, to strive after it, to put aside all the encumbrances and things that would distract us from knowing that peace of reconciliation with you, the internal peace, and also peace with our brothers and sisters and neighbors. In all things, Father, we pray.